Good morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the very word of God. Well, this week and next week, Lord willing, we will bring our study of the Sermon on the Mount to a close. Uh, Clearly, the Sermon on the Mount is, it's the one sermon that you should never forget. It's the one sermon that should never be far from your mind as a follower of Jesus. You can forget all of my sermons perfectly fine. But do not forget what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we do that? What should we do as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? I had uh, lunch with a friend this week, and uh, I was telling him a little bit about things that we've been learning together in the Sermon on the Mount, and I I was trying to remember this one part of the sermon and exactly how it went. And uh, I said, you remember in this part where Jesus says, and I couldn't remember the word, and he said, oh, hang on. And I saw his mind going. He said, I, I have the Sermon on the Mount memorized. Let me see if I can get it. And I thought, that's it. That's what we should do. So um, who's going to take up the challenge? Colby. Uh, we should memorize the Sermon on the Mount. But I doubt we can do that in the minutes we have together this morning. So Pastor Jod's going to finish our study of the Sermon on the Mount next week, Lord willing. So this is my, this is my last chance to say something about it, try to leave us with some impression. So I'm going to give you three words today, three summary words that I take from this passage here. Uh, the passage we read this morning and the one that we'll look at next week together form the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount There's a lot of good stuff here, so we broke it up a bit. So from the verses we read this morning, let me give you three words to summarize 
This is Sermon on the Mount, how we can be thinking about it. First word is destination. Second word is danger. Third word is discernment. Destination, danger, discernment. See, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the destination that we are pursuing as followers of Jesus. It warns us of the dangers that we've got to watch out for as we're pursuing this destination and encourages us to develop a discernment, a discernment that we have to cultivate along the path of discipleship. Destination, danger, discernment. So first, destination. Now, the main argument of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw all the way at the back at the beginning, is that there is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and is required for entrance into the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 5.20. If that sounds contrary to everything you thought the Bible was about, well, again, that's Jesus' words. So you'll have to take that up with him. Jesus now having made this argument throughout the Sermon on the Mount that you must possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus now begins to conclude this argument by urging his audience to enter by the narrow gate. Don't go the way of the wide gate. You see the picture before you? There's two gates you can enter, go into, and there's a destination that these gates are leading to, right? One is the destination of life, and the other, destruction. Now, these two gates, with their two ways, represent two different options for how we can live our lives. It is traditional Jewish teaching. There are two options for all of us to live by. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And later in verse 19, Moses urges the people, well, choose life. Don't choose the path of death. Remember the first psalm? We said that Psalm 1 is very similar to the wordings that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. The first psalm contrasts Two options, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous, Psalm 1 tells us, is the way toward prosperity. The way of the wicked is the way that leads to perishing. So Jesus is just fitting in with standard Jewish teaching. Jesus is making the same appeal to all who have heard his words in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus has taught in these three chapters confronts all of us with a choice. Will we live our lives by its teaching or will we forsake it? Will we enter the gate and walk the way that leads to life? Or will we go the way of the one that leads to destruction? According to Jesus, 
The stakes here are as high as they could possibly be. Either take Jesus and his teachings seriously and enter into life, or ignore him and find yourself on a path that leads to destruction. But let's stop and ask ourselves for a moment if we are really tracking with what Jesus is saying here. What does Jesus mean by life? What does Jesus mean by destruction? Many, of course, have thought that Jesus is speaking about heaven and hell, the two possible places that one might go when they die. But I would suggest to you that is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. At least that can't be the only thing that he's talking about and certainly not the main thing that he's, te- that he's talking about. He's not talking primarily about the post-mortem state, as interesting, as important as that question may be. He's talking about embodied life and the way to true, full, and enduring human flourishing, not only in the age to come, but right now. You see, this is in accordance with everything that the Bible is teaching. The Bible tells a story about the creator God who made all things and made us, his image bearers, to live in his good world. Let us be clear. The world that God made is good. And as Pastor Judd showed us this morning from his scripture reading, we are meant to flourish in the world that God made as good. We are his image bearers. He delights in the welfare of his people. So the proper attention that we ought to have when we read the Bible is not on what most of us mean when we say heaven or what most of us might be thinking when we talk about hell. The attention that we should have when we read the Bible is where the Bible itself puts the attention on God and the world that he made and our place in it. The question is, will you flourish here in this earth or will you diminish and die? Now remember that the Sermon on the Mount is addressing this issue of the righteousness that is required for us to enter the kingdom of God. So again, let's make sure we're clear. What is the kingdom of God? Too many Christians have thought for way too long that the kingdom of God is the place you go to when you die. But no, in Jesus' discussion, I think the most enlightening passage in all that Jesus, uh, all the gospel records about this question is in Jesus' discussion with the rich young man in Matthew 19. You might just write this down and look at it later. It's quite striking because there we find that the expressions eternal life Entering into that life are identical to the idea of entering the kingdom of God and of even the word to be saved. These words all refer to the same reality. And that reality is what Jesus is laying out for us here, a matter of life and death right now, and not only about what happens to a person when they die. So like any good sermon, the Sermon on the Mount beckons us to apply its truth not just once, 
but on repeat. When he tells us to enter by the narrow gate, he cannot be talking about having a born-again experience. Again, whatever one might mean by that. So that your destination is secured, done, over with. Rather, he's telling us to choose over and over again to live the way that he has prescribed. This way, this way of living, is not simply a matter of moral or immoral behaviors, but rather, as we've seen throughout the sermon, it's about having a wholeness that reflects the greater righteousness that Jesus says is required for all who want to find life, for all who want to enter the kingdom of God, for all who want to be saved. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. To me, it's one of the most striking things about this metaphor that he gives us. The ESV says that the way that leads to destruction is easy, while the way that leads to life is hard. And I am very concerned for all of us that we not get the wrong idea with these English translations. Look, it's not that the way of Jesus, the kind of life that Jesus is inviting and even demanding that his followers live, it's not that the way of Jesus is too demanding, a burden. Matthew 11.30, all of you know, Jesus says, come and follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when you hear this metaphor that Jesus is using, and when you read the translation, whichever one you have, but the ESV here, and you see that it says that the narrow way is hard, do not think, do not think that Jesus is asking us to do the impossible or laying heavy obligations upon you. No way. The hard way is the one that takes you down the path of destruction. The Jesus way, rather, is in tune with how we are created for fellowship, faithfulness, and peace. You see, the word translated hard in verse 14 is related to the word for trouble and oppression. It further describes the way of life as a way that is narrow or compressed. One commentator on the Sermon on the Mount, Glenn Stassen, says that this way of life is narrow because it is definite. Live specifically by these words and you will have life. The way of life and the way of destruction, he says, are like entering into different ends of a funnel. You can enter at the wide end, and that's easy, and find that further down it closes in on you and ends in destruction. Or you can enter at the narrow end. Call it hard if you want. It's definite. But as you enter into the funnel at the narrow end, you find it leads to a path that opens up and becomes the kind of life that is wide 
joyful. It's the life of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is inviting us into it. So this is what Jesus has put before us in the Sermon on the Mount. And the choice is presented to you every single day, every single moment, every single time you hear his words. Which destination will you pursue? Which life do you want to live? Now, put that way, I'm guessing that why would anyone choose the path of destruction? Who wants to live that way? Well, apparently a lot of people. As verse 13 says, those who enter by it, kind of the wide end of the funnel, are many, while those who find the path that leads to life, verse 14, are few. Why? Why, 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 would, why would anyone choose the path of destruction? Why would anyone choose to live contrary to the way God designed and made for us to be? It's because, and here is our second summary word, it's because of the danger. In verse 15, Jesus warns of the danger, and he calls them, the danger is false prophets. And if we don't learn how to identify them, they will lead us down the wrong path. In Matthew 24, 11, Jesus says that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. According to Jesus, according to the gospel of Matthew, false prophets are everywhere. They are very effective and we'd better watch out for them. But I'm guessing you probably don't spend much of your day thinking about this danger. I doubt most of us are thinking in the categories of true and false prophets as we go about our business. When we hear the word prophet, we probably have our minds instantly go to the category of religion and probably to a very particular type of religion. You know, those kinds where there are prophets among us. But a prophet in Jesus' day was not so much a religious person. For Israel, prophets played the role of teaching the people how they were to be faithful to their God. Yeah, there it is, religion, right? No, not so that they would be able to enter into the kingdom of God when they die. That just wasn't the question but so that they would be counted as God's people when the promised kingdom arrived on earth, as they believed it would. What was this kingdom of God that they believed would come in Jesus' day? Well, it would be the arrival of a rival kingdom to the kingdoms of the day. In that day, in the first century, that meant the Roman Empire. It meant the complete overthrow of, a, of the Roman Empire, the reestablishment of Israel's independence and political influence, a, a return to and an enlargement of the kind of national power, influence, and dominance that Israel had when David was their king. That's what the kingdom of God was. In short, prophets who were there to tell the people, this is how you get into the kingdom. This is how you will be the true Israel, counted among the people of God when God's kingdom arrives, overthrows the Roman Empire. 
prophets were more political than they were religious. They were concerned with how things were to be now more than they were concerned with how things would be when you died. And Jesus was a prophet. To take Jesus seriously then, we must not think of him as someone who went around teaching timeless truths or trying to help people get to heaven when they drew their final breath. His message was about the kingdom of God, a warning of imminent catastrophe, as real as Israel rebelling against Rome and being plunged into a decisive war. And anybody can look this up in short order. That's exactly what happened. Jesus, as a prophet, is teaching how one ought to live in light of the coming catastrophe, in light of such a decisive moment. He's teaching about the agenda that one ought to follow in order to be vindicated as a member of the true Israel, a true patriot, one who was an ally of the kingdom of God and not someone who was fighting against it. Make no mistake, his teaching was radical and subversive, and most people, in the end, wanted nothing to do with Jesus and his way. We have a better way to see the kingdom of God come about. Away with this false prophet. Or was he the true prophet? Jesus warns of, here come the false prophets. There will be lots of them. They are those who will teach a different way to live in the world right now, a way other than the way that Jesus teaches. They come dressed, Jesus says, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they are dangerous, and they're dangerous because they're deceptive. They're not easily spotted. False prophets aren't the ones who go around outwardly denying Jesus and his way, standing starkly in opposition to him. Jesus warns Christians of false prophets because they appear to be Christian. They have the sound and appearance of being on the side of Jesus. They stand up for morality. So how do we identify them? Jesus said, he tells us, you will recognize them by their fruits. There you go. Got it? Clear? Just like you can easily identify a tree by the fruit it produces, so you can identify, Jesus says, a false prophet by the bad fruit that they produce. So again, verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. But can we? Can we? Who among us does not need to sharpen our skills a little bit. So let's start with the obvious implication here. Prophets are characterized primarily by what they say. We hear their words, their encouragement, their demands. If you think about it, you've got prophetic voices in your ear virtually every waking moment. Listen to this sermon. Listening to this sermon is listening to a prophecy. I might be a false prophet. 
<laughs> but here's other prophetic voices. Listening to your spouse. Listening to your boss. Every advertisement that you hear or read is a prophetic voice. Everyone and everything that shouts or whispers, hey, do this, buy this, believe this, watch this. Which ones should you listen to? Jesus says, well, pay attention not just to their words, but in particular to their works. Now, this does not mean that if your boss is godless, then you can ignore his or her commands. <laughs> False prophet, I'm not doing what you say. To do so would be actually listening to the voice behind the voice of your boss telling you that you should show him who's boss. That might make you feel good in the moment, but you'll also be out looking for a new job the next moment. So like everything else in the Sermon on the Mount, this calls for serious wisdom in order to learn the art of identifying false prophets and refusing to follow their lead. But the point that Jesus makes plainly is the one we often don't think about enough. We need to pay attention to who has our ear. Not judging too quickly, but waiting to see what eventually comes from their lives. So pay attention to the voices you're listening to. Don't judge too quickly. Wait. And while we wait, we will do well to consider another obvious point. Those who follow false prophets become themselves false prophets. So it's good to ask, as I had to do quite a bit this week, if I've become one of them. You should ask yourself that question. Remember, the false prophets, they appear like sheep. They look like, they, they talk like, it sounds like Jesus, it sounds Christian. They're deceptive. So you should ask yourself the question, have I been duped by the false prophets and have become one of them? How would I know? Start with what we have seen in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who claim to be Christians but refuse to live by the righteousness the sermon requires are false prophets. I'm going to say it again. Those who claim to be Christians but refuse to live by the righteousness the sermon requires are false prophets. You hear the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and you just explain it away and excuse yourself, you're a false prophet. And the eventual outcome of your life will be bad fruit that leads to destruction. What Jesus teaches us in the sermon must be taken seriously by all true Christians. Ignore it or claim some kind of cheap grace that requires nothing of you and you will be left outside the kingdom of God. The gospel of grace is not opposed to works, as Jesus teaches here. So all who are true Christians 
cannot be disinterested in the righteousness of the kingdom of God demanded by the Sermon on the Mount. All right, I realize that some true Christians might find themselves disturbed. But in verse 21, Jesus doesn't exactly take his foot off the pedal. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I think this confirms my conclusion that false prophets do not necessarily know that they are false prophets. The wolf in sheep's clothing may not have bad intentions. They may have convinced themselves that they are doing the right thing, on the right path. So we all need to learn discernment. The discernment that identifies and does the will of the Father. So discernment is our third summary word. Verse 22 describes a day of final judgment. Those who will be finally excluded from the kingdom of God will protest. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? You know, this is, this is a little bit disturbing. I mean, did you notice? When Jesus says you're going to know them by their fruit, look at the fruit. <laughs> we did mighty works, prophesied, cast out demons. And even more remarkable is the fact that these false prophets did all of that in Jesus' name. Now, throughout in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself prophesies. Jesus himself casts out demons. Jesus himself does many mighty works. These are all good things. And... Doing good works in the name of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is a mark of genuineness. So I'm telling you, you look at these false prophets and it would be hard, it would be hard to come to the conclusion Jesus comes to. But when Jesus says, I never knew you, he is stressing the absolute necessity for personal discipleship. This is what we've seen throughout the sermon the necessity for wholeness as the greater righteousness that is required. Now, let's try to get this right, Christians. True belief? Yes, of course. And also, true behavior that lines up with those beliefs. That's the wholeness that is demanded. We must do what Jesus says, but we must worship him. It won't be enough just to do what he says. We must do what we do out of love for the one who has loved us. That is what it must mean to do the will of the Father in heaven, which is what Jesus gives as the entrance requirement for the kingdom of God. One must know God 
through Jesus. Without profession of faith in Christ, all of your mighty works, even done in the name of Jesus, will prove nothing. At the same time, as we've seen throughout the sermon, can you do this? Can you hold it together? You must do the will of God. The Reformation emphasis on grace and not works is a necessary distinction. But many are in need of a new Reformation to make clear again that grace cannot be taken as the opposite of righteous living. Jonathan Pennington, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount that I've used throughout this sermon series, says, to enter God's kingdom, one must have faith in Christ, but this faith must never be construed as mere mental assent or hope apart from a life of discipleship and faithfulness. Or to say it another way, the way of life is the path of Christian discipleship, of following Jesus day by day. It is on the path of discipleship that life is found. In other words, dear Christian, you don't have to utter prophecies. You say, I've never made a prophecy. Okay. You don't have to exercise a demon. You don't even have to do many mighty works in his name. Some will. Jesus did. But most of us are going to be much more ordinary than that. And yours is the kingdom of God. You see, in Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for their meticulous piety, all while neglecting, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law. And then he tells us what they are. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is the will of the Father. How do we know? Well, Jesus said it. Well, that's good. <laughs> is Jesus a true prophet? How do we know? Because Jesus, in those words, was saying what the prophet Micah said. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Faithfulness. This is what is required. Justice and mercy and faithfulness carried out in the ordinary realities of life at home, at work, and at rest. This is the will of the Father. In contrast to the claims of the false prophets, we read of the surprise of God's true people welcomed into the kingdom of God because, Jesus says, they had showed justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You remember the story? Jesus says, come on into the kingdom. When I was hungry and thirsty and in need of shelter and needing somebody to visit me, you came. You gave me food. You gave me drink. You clothed me. 
you showed up when I was all alone. And you remember what those who enter the kingdom say? It's quite a contrast to the false prophets. Lord, Lord, in your name. They say, we did? When? When did we do that? And Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Scott McKnight says, the will of God is far more often works of compassion than charismatic displays of might. You say, I'm not very gifted. I don't do much for the kingdom of God. Oh, you are wrong. The ordinary works of justice, mercy, and faithfulness along the path of discipleship is the righteousness that God requires. So I do hope in the spirit of the Lord Jesus that I can give some assurance to those among us, I know who some of you are, who are prone to doubt, who feel like just overcome with needless uncertainty. I want to give a word of assurance to you as we close this morning, while at the same time being as deadly serious and challenging as Jesus is in the sermon. Can we do both? Can we hold both? That's the, that's the problem with preaching. I know some of you are just like, every time you're just like overwhelmed with guilt and then others are just want to shake you in love. In his book, <laughs> in his book, The Jesus Way, Eugene Peterson points out that all true Christians must, quote, pay close attention to the way that we are on the way of the Lord how we do this. To be a Christian means we are not only going somewhere, but that we must take stock of the way that we go on the way. (laughs) And here's what he says. This is what he means. The way we talk, the way we use our influence, the way we treat another, the way we raise our children, the way we read, the way we worship, the way we vote, the way we garden, the way we ski. I don't know what he's talking about. The way we feel. That's it, brother. The way we celebrate that we are champions. Now i got to do the quote all over again. The way we talk, the way we use our influence, the way we treat another, the way we raise our children, the way we read, the way we worship, the way we vote, the way we garden, the way we ski, the way we feel, the way we eat. And on and on, endlessly, the various and accumulated ways and means that characterize our way of life. That's the path of discipleship. It's the path of Christian discipleship that Jesus says leads to life. Now, as well as in the resurrection. It's a lifetime of learning. Are you with me? There's nobody in here that has mastered it. Nobody. We are on the path of discipleship together, learning together, discerning together. What is the will of God? And let's obey. This is not something we can reduce to the question of how you get to heaven when you die. That question, by the way, is important and is answered 
But if you start there, you never get to this question. Get to this question, you'll know your answer to where you go when you draw your last breath. So consequently, as I was finishing this message, here's what I thought. We need each other. Not a single one of you in here is insignificant to the path of discipleship that we all walk. Did you hear that? Somebody needs to hear that. There is not a single person in here that is insignificant to the Christian discipleship of your brother and sister in this room. We need each other. We're fellow travelers of the way. With all the voices of false prophets beckoning to us unceasingly to come over and join them on a different way, we need the wisdom that our Lord gives to his church collectively to discern the way to be on the way that leads to life. So let's learn it together. Sound good? The Sermon on the Mount will be our guide, and it will lead us to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what great promises you've made to us. We find ourselves alive in the world that you made. None of us got here on our own. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. The enemy wants to take it away. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And the Bible says this is eternal life, that they might know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So now that Jesus has come, we can enter into life now. We can be saved. We can be citizens of the kingdom of God that has already broken in on this present evil age. And one day, when Christ appears, hmm, all of the opposition will bend and break and bow the knee and proclaim with everyone, Jesus is Lord. So assure us, O oh Lord, that we belong to you, not because of any inherent goodness that we've performed to earn your love, but because you set your love upon us. And as those who've been loved by God, grant us now by your Holy Spirit the grace to discern the will of God and to be obedient to it. And to learn together, because there's a lot of voices, there's a lot of reasons we stumble and fall. But in Christ, we hear the assurance of pardon. We sense the Father's welcome. And we come back home. So, encourage your dear people today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.